This series is called Set Free to Live Free because even though many of us in this room have come to know Christ and we have been set free from the reign of sin, death, and hell in our life, we still tend to want to go back to our old habits. We still want to go back into the old things that entrapped us. And commandment number 10 is the one that gets us all the most. And it's actually the one that leads to uh, breaking all of the other commands. Because what's amazing about this is that it begins in the thought. Listen to Exodus chapter 20 verse 17. Exodus twenty seventeen says this. You shall not covet. Y'all heard that before? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. All right, we hear that term a lot. Do not covet. And we, we kind of condense it because we think, you know, uh, we're, we're tweetable people. So we like to condense everything. So we just simply many times use the word do not covet. What does that mean? The word covet. What does the word covet mean? It means in its most basic form to have a strong desire for. All right? Again, the word covet means to have a strong desire for. And it says do not covet. You know what this just tells us? If covet means a strong desire, not so much an outward thing, but an inward thing, a strong desire... That means that in the Ten Commandments, God made a command about our inner desires. How awesome and how revealing and how mighty and how powerful God is that He can actually make a commandment about our thoughts, about the motivation of our heart. Folks, that shows us that God is almighty, that He knows everything about us, not just what we did, but what we think. The psalmist, David, who wrote in Psalm 139, this brought him great comfort. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Listen to this. David says, you discern my thoughts from afar. Okay? Wherever God may quote-unquote be, he knows the very depths of our hearts. He knows what makes us tick. He knows what gets us excited. He knows the things that bring fear to our very lives. God knows our thoughts, whether good or evil. Now you think to yourself, well, that's pretty freaky. That's pretty scary. I don't know if I like that idea. Here's what I love about that idea. I have a pretty wicked mind. I'm just going to be very honest with you. Very wicked mind. My mind wanders onto things it should never wander on. And God knows it and He still pursues me. Are you kidding me? Y'all don't know how bad I am. And you kind of like me. Well, some of you. Y'all kind of like me. Okay? If you knew everything about me, you'd run. You'd run away. But God, like the father of the prodigal, runs toward. That is enough to live for him and to worship him throughout all eternity. But God knows our thoughts. See, commandments 6 to 9, they all deal with, with outward things, okay? Uh, stealing, okay, that's pretty outward. Killing, lying, and adultery. But listen, it is the heart 
the thoughts that lead to those sins. And that's why God is going after your thoughts, going after your heart. Because He loves not only you too much, He loves the people around you too much. What I've had to learn this week is it's not about me. It's not about me. And yet God pursues me nonetheless. So again, the word covet means to have a strong desire for. So let me ask you this question. Is it wrong to have a a strong desire for something? Is it wrong? The word covet in its most basic form means to have a strong desire for something. So is it wrong to have a strong desire for something? That depends. Don't you love it when that happens? Just get to the point, right? It depends. It really does. It depends on what it is you're coveting coveting after, all right? Did you know that Jesus coveted? Uh Uh-oh. You're on shaky ground. Listen, Jesus never sinned. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 14 and 15, Jesus brought his disciples to the upper room and they were about to take of the Lord's Supper. Jesus knew what was about to happen. He spent three years with these disciples. Man, he loved these guys. He poured his life. He, uh, to use Greek terms, he matheoed them. Okay? He discipled them and he didascated them. Okay? He did both. He was well balanced. But at the end, knowing that his time was short, the scripture says this in Luke 22, 14 and 15. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired. Okay? Your King James Version would say, I have desired with great desire. Okay? To eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So Jesus longed for that moment. That he would be able to to present to them the bread and the cup and to show them the new covenant that God was going to do in and through their lives that would literally turn the world upside down. No, actually right side up. That's what God was wanting to do. And God had a strong desire to eat with them during that hour. In 1 Corinthians 14, the apostle Paul, he says when people are struggling about spiritual gifts, he says, so my brothers earnestly desire, covet, to prophesy. They earnestly desire that. Listen, get into the word of God. Know what God's word says. That is so much more important than some other gifts that might be uh, used to edify self. Have you ever heard this term before? Brother or sister, I covet your prayers. <gasps> they just broke the Ten Commandments. No, no, they didn't. Okay? If their motive is right, I earnestly desire for you to pray for me about this situation because I'm really struggling with a decision to make or something that the doctor said and I'm scared about or whatever the case may be. If someone says, I covet your prayers, that means I strongly desire you to pray this for me, okay? To be my intercessor on my behalf when you pray, okay? Those aren't bad things, right? They're good. So then, why does it say do not covet? doesn't say that we've shortened it too much and we've missed the point let's read it again Exodus twenty seventeen says you shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's listen very carefully the sin of coveting 
is the desire to have what is not yours to have. All right? Listen, it's okay to want a nice house. It's okay to want a nice spouse, a family, or a career. Of course, in its proper perspective, right? God must come first. Commandment number one. All right? It's okay to have a nice house and all those things. It is not okay to want my spouse or my house, okay? Or my job or my family. That is not okay. Do you see the difference? It's okay to pursue things. As a matter of fact, that type of desire is what causes many of us to do great things. Right? I want to grow closer to Christ so you study more. Okay? I want to provide for my family so you, you uh, get an education, you get a job. Because that strong desire leaves you in a great way. But also, that strong desire can lead you to steal, lie, kill, and commit adultery. So really, it's where is your desire uh, appointed at? Because the desire is going to shoot off. It's going to do that. But are you pointing towards Christ or pointing to self and what you think is most important? So it's okay to want nice things. It's not okay for you to want some other people's things. All right? So this desire, it, it directs your thoughts, your attitudes, your mind. And eventually, this is the sad part, eventually... It becomes your actions. Coveting becomes evil when that which you strongly desire to have or possess is not yours to have. It's that simple. So why is coveting such a big deal? Why should we not covet? There's a good question. Why should we not covet? Here's why. You don't covet because number one, coveting will reject God's plan for your life. Coveting rejects God's plan for your life. You're always looking for that greener grass, okay? You're not, you're not satisfied where you're at right now. You're always looking at somebody else. I want that person's job, okay? I want that person's spouse. Boy, they seem to have a happy marriage. Look at mine. It's horrible, okay? Or you're looking at any marriage and you're like, you know what? I don't have a marriage. So I just, I know that I will be absolutely and totally content if I have a marriage, uh, if I have that person's marriage, it's okay to desire marriage. It's not okay to desire somebody else's marriage. That's adultery of the heart. You're always looking for the green your gosh. God has a great plan for you. You don't have it figured out yet. That's okay. He's got a plan and he desires you to walk in his steps. At the end of your life, when you're in heaven, listen, if you have followed God's plan and it may not have been easy on earth, you're going to look back and say, thank you. Exactly what I needed. And now I get to worship the rest of my life in awe of you who do exactly what he was doing for my life. But instead, coveting causes us to be discontent, dreaming of another plan that will never satisfy us. Never. Secondly, uh, coveting breeds envy and bitterness. Okay? Because I want what other people want. Okay? I'm not content with with where I'm at. So not only do I want what other people want, I start getting frustrated at people who have what I don't have. I should have my boss's job. He or she's a punk. They don't know what they're doing. This is insane. I could do ten times better than that person. You know what? I'm not here to say you can or can't. But the point is, is that envy and that bitterness is destroying your heart, which will destroy your relationships uh, horizontally and vertically. 
And it's eating away into something even more, uh, even more devious than you can imagine. I'll get to that in just a second. All right? You end up hating people. This is wrong, church. We are supposed to be people who are defined by our love for one another. That is the distinguishing mark of Christ's church versus any other organization, any other committee, any other group of people. They're all defined by socioeconomic, by the color of their skin, by whether they enjoy uh, riding elephants or donkeys, whatever the case may be. We have all these different plans. Jesus says they will know you. They will know that you're mine because of your love for one another and coveting. The sin of coveting other people's stuff will only breed hatred and envy, which is the exact opposite of the heart of God. Coveting, by the way, will also eventually lead to outward actions. It's got, it's got to birth itself somewhere. James 1.15 says that this is where sin begins, right there. And it's going to give birth, okay? If sin... If sin uh, is impregnated by what's in your mind, it's going to give birth some way and somehow. And it's still sin. Which brings you to number three. Coveting takes away from worship. Thanksgiving of the one true God. This is where it's so destructive. Coveting is worship. Coveting is worship. Colossians 3.5 says this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Covetousness. Which is idolatry. Coveting things that are not yours to have is idolatry. It is worship. Worship of things and ultimately a worship of self. Which causes you to break all ten of the commandments. He is no longer, you no longer regard the very God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of bondage and slavery. Instead, you brush him aside and you say, I am the one who frees me. I am the one who is king and captain of my life. Put to death these things. And you know what's even scarier about just someone thinking or doing that? We have, as a church, we have embodied this into our own culture into our own religiosity. This happens all the time. God wants you to have your best life now, some would say. So you deserve this best life. I've heard some people say these things. How about this? Your neighbor, who is an unbeliever, has a BMW. He doesn't know God, but you do. And God is more wealthy than the devil. So you go get your BMW. What? It's all about you. That's what people say from pulpits. They say this. God wants you to have all the good things of this world. Are you kidding me? There are people who've been before us who've been burned at the stake because they would print the Bible so that people can read it. You think at the burning of the stake, they're like, man, this is great. I got everything I wanted from this world. I got all the cool stuff. You think all the apostles, think about it, every single one of the 12 apostles, every single one of them went through severe persecution. Every one of them, save John, was actually put to death. And John, they kept trying to kill him and it wouldn't happen. He died of old age. Can you believe that? When you step into Christianity, you do not step in a comfortable life. But you step into a promise of eternal life. 
Some say this. Pray, dream, name it, claim it, whatever you desire. Are you kidding me? Didn't I just say earlier that I have a bad, wicked, evil mind? If I get what I desire, I'm doomed. Folks, there is something going on right now a lot, and and I, I, I do not want this to come out the wrong way, so please understand my heart when I say this. I think a lot of this has been infiltrated in, in women's ministries. I'm in trouble here. Okay? There are some good books, New York Times best-selling books from quote-unquote Christian authors that are telling us some things. They have a Christian tone to it, but deep within, it's all about you. Have you ever heard this phrase before? It's on t-shirts now, and it's really big. The devil whispered in my ear, you're not strong enough to withstand the storm. Today, I whispered in the devil's ear, I'm a child of God. I'm a warrior of Christ. I am the storm. No, you're not. You're the terrified disciple on the other side of the boat saying, Jesus, save us, Jesus, save us, Jesus, save us. That's who you are. You need a savior to come and calm the storm. You don't have the tools within you to be the storm. We need the one who is the storm calmer to be king over our life. Too many times we get this, this, this Christian arrogance. We can take a Bible verse and twist it in such a way that we are the captain of our own ship. Just like that old, that old bumper sticker. You've seen it before. Jesus is my co-pilot. Are you kidding me? Put him in the pilot seat now. My goodness. Let go, as Carrie Underwood say, Jesus, take that wheel. Sorry, get too. <laughs> no, that's bad. That's bad. You know, we, we say that, but we still try to do the pedals, right? Folks, that's what coveting is. And that has infiltrated the church in a major way. I heard this from a preacher. He said this. Think of the logic of this. I want you to live. And in order to live, key words there, in order to live, you got to have passion. you got to have passion in your life. You see, you are not living today. I'm going to sound like him. You are not living today because you have no passion. Get passion and then you will have all that life offers you. And here's the verse he used. Acts chapter 1 verse 3. Acts chapter 1, 3 says this, To whom also Jesus showed himself alive after his passion. What that says is this, that Jesus rose from the dead. He, be, he was alive after his sufferings. Church, we need to open our eyes. We have a lot of people that we think at best are well-meaning, at worst are a tool of Satan. To lead us down a path of covetousness, which will never bring us to the doorstep of Christ. It'll always bring us to our own house. It may look pretty on the outside, but on the inside, it's rotting away. Number four, coveting causes us to miss our true joy. Listen, things do not bring us happiness. They only bring a desire for more. Don't they? They only bring a desire for more. How many of you, uh, let's just <laughs> throw this out. How many of you are Clemson fans? I know, never talk about sports in here. Listen, you know what Clemson wants? 
They want another national championship. What happened three years ago is, is not holding us over, right? That's the way it is. Okay, how many Gamecock fans? Okay, right now, you guys want to win. I mean, you want that so bad. So bad. You want it so bad. And I get it. I get it. That, that one win wasn't enough. I get it. I get it. I am in such trouble. Please forgive me. Okay, don't email me, call me. I'm telling you now, I'm sorry. Okay. But listen, coveting only causes us to want more. When we get what we thought we wanted, we always need another thing. There's always a better radio. There's always a nicer attitude. There's always these types of things. Listen, someone suggested this. There are at least two ways to be rich. One is to have a lot of possessions. The other is to have few needs. Two ways to be rich. One is to have a lot of possessions. The other is to have few needs. To win the battle over coveting is to put our needs in its proper perspective and diminish our wants to the manageable level. Or I would say it this way. Coveting will cause us to chase the trinkets of the world and neglect and miss the treasure we have in Christ. So how do we change? I close with this. How do we change? James 4, 1 through 10. James 4, if you have your Bible turned there, it's on the screen, but it'll look better there because it's a, a, a long passage. James 4, 1 through 10. You got to think, you got you to walk through the logic of, James got some deep stuff here he's trying to tell us. But let me just tell you the beginning of it. We're messed up people. We're laughing at things we shouldn't laugh at. We're pursuing things that will ultimately lead us to ruin. We're chasing after the very things that the prosperity gospel is telling us to go after. And we're still struggling in life. Some of us are, are like this. And I, I just saw, you, you could watch a video of this. It's so sad. Uh, there's a music group called Gunger. Okay? And they were a part of a huge mega church. Well, well now they have left the church because they're atheists. And here's why. When they first got married, everything was perfect. They had the nice house. They got a a big job. Everything was paid for and taken care of. And they said, because we kept ourselves pure, because we've done it the right way, God has blessed us. Well, after they've gotten into marriage for a few years, things started getting rocky in their life. And they said, wait a minute. We're doing it all right. God's not holding up his end of the deal. So maybe there is no God. (gasps) This is where we're at. This is what happens if covetousness is your God. If it's your idolatry. Listen to what James says. James 4, 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions, you're living for yourself. Your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. Why? Because your covetousness is never satisfied. You're never satisfied. You're always going back to the well to get more and more water that Jesus says that if you drink of his will, you will never thirst again. You covet and you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask, but you do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You're praying, God, my will be done. That's what you're praying. My will be done. God never told us to pray that. He said to pray his will be done. And that's what causes our hearts to mold and meld with his. He says this, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
That right there is the point. We laugh, we play, we carouse, we do all these types of things in a sinful, self-absorbed environment. And it's destroying us from the inside out. And we get mad at God when we ignore Him and we do all the things we want to do and things go bad. It's always God's fault. We live in a culture now where it's not our fault, right? It's always the politician's fault. It's always the things that have happened in the past. It's always the parents' fault. It's always this. It's always that. And James reels us in and says, here's the truth of the matter. He says, do you not suppose that it is no purpose that the scripture says this? God yearns jealously. There's desire there. God yearns jealously over the spirit, that which he has made dwell in us. But God gives us more grace. Therefore, here here comes the, the, the redemption here. Therefore, God says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Uh, This is talking about over your sin. Okay, and let your laughter be turned into mourning and joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before God and he will then exalt you. When he exalts you, he'll give you a proper understanding of rejoicing, a proper understanding of celebration, a proper and a clean understanding of what it means to be content in him. Listen, how do you change? Number one, humility. You need to, you need to believe this statement. I am not God. You need to believe that. Because you're not. Where were you when the stars were put in their place? Where were you when, when, by speaking a word, the planets were formed? Folks, you're not God and neither am I. I'm I'm not trying to make you feel like you're small. I'm telling you, you're small. Okay? Humility. You can't change on your own. And listen, you can't even approach a holy God as you are. You need forgiveness of sin. You need to no longer be separated from God forever by by covetousness. Which brings us to number two. Number two, we need to submit ourselves to God's plan for our life. We need to submit. We need to be a people of holiness. We need to say this, God Without you, I am nothing. I cannot calm the storm. I am not the storm. I need the storm calmer. The one who can literally say, peace be still, to come into my ever-conflicting heart. I need you to save me of my sin. There's only one. There's only one that chose to pay for your sin and to give you eternal life and to give you what you most need. That's Jesus Christ. Submit to him. Listen, he is a Lord who does all things well. He does all things right. And we need to obey him, which brings us to number three. Entrust your life to God's control. Entrust your life to God's control. Paul caught this. Okay, Paul was a very religious man. He, he had so much that he could boast about. All right, There's people who want to be like me, Paul would say. But when he came to know Christ, he realized that his stuff is like, just give me a wastebasket. My life should just fall in there compared to knowing the excellency and the riches of Christ. 
He would say this now to us today if he were here. Matter of fact, we have his word, uh, the word of God contained in Philippians 4, 12, 13, and 19 says this. Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. I know what it means to be embarrassed and to be exalted. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, famine or feast, abundance and need. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Listen, that verse does not mean God. There's a lot of weight here and I got to win this award. So God, I'm going to trust you. I can do all things through Christ. You bust a gut. Listen, that's not God's fault. Shouldn't have been lifting that weight. Okay. (laughs) All right. That's not what that verse means. That verse means this. God has given you what you need to deal with where you're at today. He does that. That's amazing that our God can do that. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And verse 19 says, And my God shall supply every need need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ. If you would entrust yourself to God's control, he will provide. And I'm here to tell you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, that promise is for anyone who trusts in him. The proof of that is the very worst sin. I know my sins. Adam and Eve, they were given great provision. They sinned against a holy and righteous God. They were judged for it, but they were also given provision. Even in our worst, if we come to God, he will give us provision. Does that through Christ. So the remedy for dealing with covetousness is according to Hebrews 13.5 this. Church, we need to be content with what we have. For God has said, I will never leave you. Take you. Are you kidding me? Church, I urge you to read 2 Peter 1 when you get home today. And there you will see the truth of God's word. Anyone who is in Christ, you have everything you need. Everything you need in him. So I conclude with this. Are you tired Are you tired of living for the things that don't matter? I'm serious. There are times when I get addicted to some games and I'll play them and I'll play them and hours go by and I think to myself, what happens when I win this game? Here's what happens. Yeah, I didn't change a thing. I just wasted hours of my life on something that ultimately doesn't matter. Can you imagine that I have the privilege of exalting my king, my Lord Jesus, and honoring and obeying him? But imagine if I spent years on a video game, and I stand before God one day, and I say, God, yeah, I didn't obey you, but I made the highest score on this game. Let's let's get tired of living for the things that don't matter. Let's stop worshiping gods of wood, hay, cloth, plastic, that will never satisfy our greatest needs. Listen, church, are we ready to live a life of true joy, true peace, beyond the circumstances? Okay? Circumstances are going to ebb and flow. That's why we're not to rejoice in our circumstances. We're to rejoice in the Lord always. If we rejoice in Him, He'll show us the proper perspective of our circumstances, and He'll give us the peace and the contentment to no matter where we're at, no matter what hole we have uh, fallen into or dug into ourselves, Our God will be there to pick us up when we look his way. So I urge you to call on Jesus today to be your peace and your contentment. Let's pray. Father God.
In all things and in all ways, you are good. You are mighty. You are holy. You deserve our worship. You deserve our trust. You deserve our submission. You deserve our obedience. You're that good. Father, I pray, Lord, that if there's someone in here that has not yet obeyed you in calling upon your name and saving faith, to trust in Jesus Christ no longer themselves, God, that today would be their day of freedom from covetousness and sin. And God, I pray for us believers. Although we have been set free, we keep going back into the cages of covetousness. We keep longing for things that are never to be ours, or at least not yet. Give us the courage to break free from that today by laying it at the altar and allowing you to be our contentment. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen.